Good morning, everyone. Before we begin officially, we've gotten in a shipment of new small catechisms, the 2017 version, the updated version. So if you haven't uh, purchased one yet, we have them up here on sale for the low price of 1723, which maybe by next weekend it'll be 127.23 or something like that, given the way things are going. Well, today we are going to be looking at the Ten Commandments as given us in the small catechism. We've got a view toward Christianity that this is how the head of the household is to instruct his family, um, or her family as the case may be. And so we want to view things toward that angle. We're seeing here too that Christianity isn't merely a set of doctrinal statements to be believed but it is indeed a life to be lived. And so, yes, there is doctrine and there is life, and these two things are wed together, in fact. So, we'll be taking a look at the Ten Commandments. We'll be talking a little bit about the law today, and especially the first table of the law, the first three of the commandments, having to do with our relationship vertically with God. Um, Of course, the last seven commandments having to do with our relationship horizontally with one another. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, to begin with, let's simply open up to the table of contents, roughly about five pages in. And if you go to the table of contents in your small catechism, again, we're going to be looking at section one, and we see how many many parts are there in section one. Six. Anyone know the name of these six parts? Six chief chief parts. Wonderful. These six chief parts constitute the fullness of the catechism. And remember then, as we're going into these six chief parts, when we turn to the explanation, really we're just looking at each one of these six chief parts in detail. So today, the first of the six chief parts, the Ten Commandments, and really only the first half of those in view. So let's turn to page 13. And what we want to do is just get a holistic overview of how simple and straightforward this is in terms of how we may teach this in our households. So in terms of practical matters, if you've got a place on your dining room table, maybe you keep a Bible there. Keep a catechism there. Or if you've got a little nook nearby or a little cabinet nearby, um, Bible and catechism nearby, that just simply makes it that much easier to figure out a pattern and routine um, where you can have this kind of teaching, instruction, devotional life um, in your in your family context. On page 13, if you look at the picture... These are wonderful pictures throughout this edition of the Catechism. A picture is worth a thousand words indeed. What do you see in that picture? Tablets? 
Mm-hmm. Front and center, the tablets. How are the, uh, how are the numbers done? Doesn't it look like the artist messed up and squished too many together on the, on the right hand side? What's, what's going on there? First table and second table. Now, this accords with what Jesus teaches when he is asked the question, what is the first and greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So these two aspects of love, love for God, and and I kind of use these terms vertical, and love for neighbor, horizontal, and he says, he says that th- this constitutes the greatest commandment and love for God. And there's another like it, love for man. On these, the law and the prophets hang. Okay. So then what do we see in these two stone tablets? Commandments one, two, and three have to do with loving God and commandments four through ten have to do with loving neighbor. Okay. What's, uh, what's right underneath the stone tablet? Mount Sinai, yeah, where they were given. Um, and this kind of idea of uh, the first um, the first covenant, the first testament. And then what's uh, below Mount Sinai? The burning bush. Exactly right. Reminding us that God called who through the burning bush? Moses, and sent Moses into Egypt in order to rescue God's people and redeem God's people. And so Moses does this, of course, God working through him. You have the ten plagues, etc. They're brought out through the waters of the Red Sea, which in our epistle text today, Paul refers to as a baptism. So they receive this prefigurement of Christian baptism. They're baptized through the Red Sea. They come out, they come to Sinai, and their God gives them the Ten Commandments. This is my will for you. What uh, inevitably happens when God says, thou shalt and thou shalt not? Does Israel fulfill it perfectly? No. In fact, no sooner does Moses bring the first set of these tablets down from Sinai, and what does he behold? the people have fallen into crass idolatry with the golden calf and they're worshiping and the text seems to indicate doing rather profane things. Moses slams the stone tablets down. They've already violated the very first and greatest of the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Interesting there that they've actually called the golden calf Yahweh. So you can see how tricky this is. Hey, we're still worshiping Yahweh. He just looks like a golden calf. All right, and um, so obviously then the Ten Commandments are given, and we're going to talk about this, but the Ten Commandments are given, and we're not going to be able to do them perfectly. Israel's not going to be able to do them perfectly. How do we know this from the nature of the covenant itself? What else does God give along with the Ten Commandments that would that would indicate that the Ten Commandments were never going to be kept perfectly by God's people? Sacrificial system, exactly right. That through the bloodshed of innocent animals, God would blot out their iniquities. And so, um, the book of Leviticus is about this. Now, all of this pointing us toward Christ and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament indicates in what way the blood of bulls forgave sins, only insofar as they pointed to that greater blood, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed 
his, his blood shed for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. Okay? So we can see then in context how it is that the Ten Commandments are given. They are, in fact, God's will for God's people, um, but along with them in the Old Testament, and of course in the New, um, he provides a way of forgiveness. And that's why I think so beautifully in this picture, at the very top, indeed, even penetrating into the heart of the tablets is the cross. Now, the cross of Jesus over the top of the commandments, showing that Christ blots out all our sins, and whatever list of sins we might have have been nailed to the cross in his flesh and put away forever. I do like, too, I don't know that the artist necessarily intended it this way, but I do like, too, how the cross seems to penetrate those two tablets. Because if you were to look at a place where the law was being fulfilled to its absolute fullest extent, you could do no better than look to the cross of Jesus. There on the cross, God is forsaking him, and yet he cries out in faith, My God, my God. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, perfect faith, perfect love for God, even when God is, by all appearances, being absolutely loveless toward him. That's the vertical fulfillment of the law. Jesus loving God with heart, soul, and mind fully, even when God has forsaken him. And then what about the horizontal dimension? All of humanity, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Roman, crucifying him, torturing him, mocking him. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And see, we see his perfect love for man. And so the fulfillment of the law in the highest possible degree is Jesus on the cross. All right. Any questions? Are we good so far? Okay. The Ten Commandments, of course, come right out of the Scriptures. You could look at Exodus chapter 20 if you wanted to, and we may spend some time there, though I kind of doubt it. Um, let's simply go through the commandments, and then you can see where Luther has interjected a meaning. So, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And then here's Luther's interpretation of that, again, to help the head of the household teach his family. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Um, do raise your hand if you've got a question or if you object, um, and we can entertain that. Otherwise, my plan is to simply go through all these so we can get a full, the, just the simplicity, the fullness of what this text is about. Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray praise and give thanks. Now, something I'll simply point out here um, is in these commandments, number two and following, there's always a what we should do and what we should not do. So a positive and a negative element to these meanings. So in this case, um, we should fear and love God so that we don't curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but rather, positively, call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. I think one of the great revolutions that we could put um, in place and get moving is to simply embrace this ourselves and then pass it on to the younger people and our children, and that's to say little simple things like, thanks be to God. God be praised. Dear Father, help. Have mercy. Those little kinds of prayers, always and ever on our lips to one another, to our Father, 
and that this simply becomes normative in our lives as Christians. So we're in constant communication with him, even just very short, brief. It doesn't have to be this great moment where you, you know, fall down on your face and, um, you know, you're in sackcloth and ashes and you're planning on praying for four hours. Uh, you, to just daily pray. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but to daily pray, um, and to have this daily prayer, these daily prayers upon our lips. Okay, moving on, third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Okay, so we can talk that there's a little change here because to God's people, Israel is given the Sabbath day, Saturday worship. That's abrogated as early as the New Testament scriptures, the generation of the apostles. You see them meeting the first day of the week. Um, and so that would be Sunday. So there's nothing that binds us to Saturday as such or to any of the other Old Testament nuances. Um, but we have kept this commandment at its root and core, which is not despising preaching or God's word, but rather holding it sacred and gladly hearing it and learning it. Now, of course, in our culture, this is alien because we expect um, to be spoon-fed everything. We expect to be entertained. And if it's not entertaining, if it's not engaging, it's the problem of the director or the writer or the speaker or the entertainer. Okay? But given what we know about God's Word, that it's living and active and, in fact, does belong to God, then how should our attitude be as we go into his house and hear his Word? If it strikes us as boring or not entertaining or not engaging or irrelevant, where's the problem lie? Ah, in our hearts, in our minds. So this is um, a very apropos commandment for us to consider. As we go into the sanctuary, we're doing something quite alien to the rest of our culture, where it's just, hey, entertain me. We're going in there prepared um, to hold God's word sacred. That's going to be a battle against our flesh and against the distractions, and maybe even the attitudes exhibited by people around us, attitudes and behaviors. We're going to hold it sacred, and we're going to gladly hear and learn it. This is a great wrestle. And of course, it comes right out of Jesus' own words. Be careful how you hear. This was just a matter of simply just letting it go in. Then Jesus wouldn't say, be careful or take care how you hear. Okay, so here in the third commandment. Now, these three, as I mentioned, constitute the commandments directed um, toward our relationship with God. Any questions there on the first table? All right. Into the second table, the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So not only parents given to us by God as authorities, but then those authorities which derive their power from the office of parent, from the office of father, properly speaking, and what are those? Well, here we see then the dawning of the two kingdoms. The right-hand kingdom of the church receives its authority from Father, and the left-hand kingdom of the state receives its authority from Father. Okay. So anytime church is working counter to the purposes of God and counter to the Father's role leading his family in a godly Christian way, what's an error? church and the fathers of the church. 
Anytime the state is being led in such a way that it prohibits or impedes the father of the house from leading his family in a Christian way, in a Christian life, what's the problem? The state. This is something we desperately need to regain. Um, you fathers, and by extension, because of kind of the brokenness of our society, um, you heads of household, whoever you may be, you are given biblical sovereignty over these two estates. Now, the ultimate authority in governance, of course, is God's Word. But God's Word is located first and foremost in the family. God doesn't create um, a state. God doesn't create a church. He creates a family. And then on account of sin comes these designations of church and state, these two realms or kingdoms. Does that make sense? So when the state is doing something that impedes your role as head of the household and leading your family in a godly way, or the church does that, you have every right to rebel against that. You're to follow these authorities when they're in keeping with the word and counsel of God, when they're in keeping with their offices themselves. That's Romans 13. But not when they fall outside of those offices. And if you want a proof text for this, I would simply submit to you the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, I'm not, I'm kind of not joking. Like, open your Bible and plunk down your finger and you're going to see somebody rebelling against a godless or tyrannical authority, whether it be religious or civil. Think even of the, um, the nursemaids who are the, the, um, yeah, of, uh, Egypt. Remember how, um, Pharaoh demands that they slaughter the babies? And they outright lie. This is commended in Scripture. They outright lie and say, I'm sorry, we couldn't get to them in time. The Hebrew women are so vigorous, they give birth right away, and there was no way for us to slaughter them. Civil disobedience and lying to government. Perfectly permissible when government's acting in a tyrannical and satanic way. Moses, do you think he subverted rightful government when he went in and said, let my people go? Absolutely. If you don't think that's political resistance, then have to come up with a very nuanced definition of that. What about all the prophets throughout the ages of the wicked kings? From Solomon forward, the kings brought in nothing but idolatry, and the prophets all say, don't listen to the kings insofar as they command idolatry, insofar as they create godless laws. So um, the entire scriptures are a testament to standing up for what God says. And that authority resides in the head of the household. So we're going to spend some more time talking about this because this has largely been um, obscured, twisted, lost in our minds as Christians here in America because, um, largely speaking, we haven't had to pay attention. And so we've fallen into kind of a sloppy thinking of separation between church and state, understood as Americans, is identical to the two kingdoms doctrine of Scripture. Not so. We'll spend some time on that. Yeah, please. What do you say to the Christian who says, you know, I totally adhere to what you're saying. What do you say to the Christian who says to you, oh, God will take care of that. We don't have to get angry or involved. What do we say to them? Mm, yeah. So I think, I mean, I don't know. It depends who they are and how respectful you want to be. Um, oh, that doesn't bother but me. It's, but it's really... Hopefully that gives you your answer then. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think it, what people have lost sight of is just, well, I mean, sanity, moral sanity. We live in a lawless age. You can be quite legalistic about lawlessness, but it's still lawlessness, um, at its root. Now, 
what people have lost sight of is, okay, well, so let's say then that you've got a child. I'm, I'm free to take your child from you and put him into slave labor in my household. Are you going to object to that? On what grounds are you going to object to? Won't God take care of it? Right. Of course, God has given us means by which we are to enact justice here. And he has given us these vocations. And the chief vocation here is of father and mother. I mean, if you, you know, I'm not going to get into an argument here technically. You have, you have, um, of course, Adam and Eve created and given one to another as husband and wife first. So there's a kind of chronological, um, premise there. But there's a logical premise in the parents as being authorities, right? And so then you go from, they have children, now what? What's, what authority are those children under? Under the authority of their parents, you see. And so God is already working through parents. The same argument can be made that, hey, we shouldn't teach our kids anything about the Bible because God will see to that. You see? So we have a duty to do what's right for our children, a duty to do what's right for our neighbor. And, and even sometimes in the abstract, even when our neighbor is not in view, we have a duty to simply do right by God and be faithful to God. Um, you can think of, um, Remember Daniel, uh, who is instructed to, um, uh, 30 days, you can't pray. That was the edict. I think we were told there for a little while, here in California at least, we had a number of weeks where we could not worship. 30 days you can't pray. Do you think Daniel was like, oh, okay, well, it's not doing any harm to my neighbor. No, he's not going to let God be disrespected that way. He's not going to let that infringe upon his own piety. So he prays and he ends up, thrown into the lion's den, civil disobedience. Um, same with the three boys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. And there's such a beautiful testimony there of their civil disobedience. They take, take off the civil ruler so much that he says, crank the furnace, and it's so hot that the people who are firing it up, I think, perish from the heat. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have this beautiful statement. They say, God will save us, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. <laughs> That's the perfect prayer is, hey, I've got full confidence that God will save me or not, which is fine. Still God, and I'm not going to bend the knee. So we need to, we need to regain this sense of vocation, this sense of responsibility that God has given to us. Um, and particularly as authorities, as heads of our households. And then, um, you know, by extension, our role in, in civil sphere as citizens. Um, I don't see any governors here in this, uh, civil authorities here in this room, but if you did happen to be in that office, faithfulness in that office. And then um, also as Christians and as pastors, um, we need to regain this sense of authority in our offices. And um, that authority here, as the fourth commandment teaches very plainly, stems from the authority that God gives at the very beginning to parents. Does that make sense? More to come on that because I think it's a hot-button issue and one that we're going to be forced to deal with in the years to come. All right, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Okay, the hurting and harming of our neighbor in his body. Um, again, we are we are to look and see objectively, according to God's word, what is hurt or harm. Um, obviously, we're, you know, we can look in our culture and see things like abortion or euthanasia. I mean, these things are contrary to the fifth commandment, of course. Um, but so is the idea of um, mutilating someone. So if, 
you know, if someone's suffering from a mental illness and they're, you know, they're born biologically a male, science says they're a male, and they say, no, I'm, I'm actually a female, help me become a woman, it's incumbent upon us to say, you can't become a woman. You're going to become a mutilated male. Right? We can lop things off, we can invert things, but at the end of the day, you're just a mutilated male. Okay? And vice versa. So this kind of mutilation is a form of murdering, hurting or harming our neighbor and his body. And so we're opposed to this. Rather, we want to help and support our neighbor in every physical need. And it just so happens that biology and science and objective fact agree with us in this case. And so we don't need to be ashamed about this in the least. Um, I don't think we need to be rude or abrasive about it either. We need to be compassionate towards people suffering with mental illness. Um, and that's the second part of this commandment, that we help and support our neighbor in every physical need, including helping them to understand why God has created their body as such and um, what it means then to live with this kind of uh, gender dysphoria, as it's sometimes called, even though uh, that first word gender is probably more problematic than helpful. All right, so fifth commandment. Again, very, very relevant. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. And husband and wife love and honor each other. Um, this uh, idolatry and sexual immorality, um, idolatry and adultery always go hand in hand. And so as our as our culture continues toward crass, idolatry, um, it is going to continue toward sexual immorality of just about every kind. I think what we need to realize is, you know, here in the West, um, this is a matter of course. Uh, we can protect our children as best as we can, and we should uh, inculcate in them love for this commandment, love for chastity inside and outside of marriage, and before marriage, and of course inside the vocation of marriage. We also need to poise and prepare ourselves to realize, though, that most young people are going to be sexually damaged. They're, they're not going to have kept this commandment um, in one form or another. Uh, it's basically ubiquitous that if you spend any time on um, social media or online, you're going to run into pornographic images, whether you like it or not. Um, I was stumbling around on uh, social media just the other day, and I, um, and I, this was a video, this was a, I was looking at Reddit, and, uh, suggested for me was a video. I don't know, I had visited some uh, site that was tangential to, tan tangential to some um, little site or community that was tangential to another, and this, all of a sudden flashing before my eyes before I even know what's happening is a man getting murdered, just flat out beaten to death. I, and I just, it just dawned on me, like, what if this was my kids seeing this? And how horrific. And the same thing happens um, with pornographic images and that kind of thing. That, like, it's not any longer, it's, I mean, you can make a voluntary choice, of course, to pursue these things, but it's passively fed to you. And so we just have to come to a recognition as a church that while, on the one hand, we oppose these things vehemently and, and in, in strictest possible terms, and, um, and we ourselves, we repent where and when we fall into these things. But we need to also inculcate a great tenderness and compassion towards the youth that are going to be devastated and broken and, and destroyed by all of this uh, lawless ideology that's become so prevalent. So I think the church really needs to poise itself, as she has in previous ages, to catch those who have been destroyed and are falling um, 
on account of where the culture, where the pagan culture has led them, how it's just broken and destroyed them. The church needs to come in and say, there is healing for you. There is purity for you in the body of Christ given sacramentally, in his blood poured out into your lips sacramentally. There is healing and cleansing for you um, from all sins, um, from those sins against the sixth commandment, from those sins against the fifth commandment. So um, that's just my little mini homily and mini sermon on those. Um, obviously, you can see that these are four, five, and six are really, really hot button um, commandments for us. And then, of course, the rest are too, but I think in terms of culture, those are the ones most obvious and mainstream. Arguably, you could include in the seventh commandment, um, just depending upon uh, your willingness to look into our economic system and just how honest or not it is. But maybe a little more controversial in our midst. The seventh commandment, you shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. Okay, yeah, so in view here, of course, is, um, and I would, I would hone, hone in on get them in any dishonest way. That's what's condemned here. Obviously, I think we all know well enough, like, don't be a pickpocket, don't rob a bank. But far more subtle is, what if it's legal, but dishonest? What if it's permissible? What if it's the status and state of the art? Uh, should you as a Christian just accept that? Or should you ask yourself, is this immoral, dishonest, contrary to love for my neighbor? And that's what this latter half is getting at. Maybe some of you have seen the chart that's um, kind of circling around where, uh, you know, and again, I don't mean to... Uh, say anything terribly provocative here, that's not the point. Um, but you've seen this chart around that, that show um, how corporations have profited over the past years and how they continue to raise their prices. And some of them profiting 60%, 100%, and more, and then continuing to sort of ride the whole idea of, well, it's inflation, so we have to elevate this even more. I mean, what is this but a crushing of the impoverished, a crushing of the poor in our midst? Um, you can't see it as other. I think that that's uncontroversial, and maybe I'll stop there. But it's something we increasingly will have to become attuned to here in our culture, is the crushing corporate greed. And we are now seeing that manifest where if the government can't tyrannize us, government tells who to. Corporations, corporations who can deplatform you, who soon enough may decide that they won't bank with you. They can basically cut you out of online life or cut you out of goods and services and render you a, a modern day caveman living exiled from society even while you're in the midst of society. This is where things are going. So it does us no favors to cozy up and coddle ourselves up to this kind of just profound corruption. But like church fathers of the past and, and Christians of the past, increasingly we need to point out and just say that, look, I'm all for capitalism. I'm not, you know, it's, it's it probably the best we've got going in a fallen world in terms of economics. Um, and if you've got a better idea, I'm all ears. <laughs> but um, the flip side of that is, can capitalism run amok? Can it be done in such a way that it simply destroys and oppresses the poor? Absolutely. And we need to be cognizant of that. 
Luther's wonderful. If you haven't read Luther, I, if you haven't read Luther at all, this would be a fine place to start because you get a great flavor for him. But if you haven't read him for a while, um, pick up in your book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. Um, the third of the books you're supposed to have as a Lutheran. Lutheran Study, Bible Catechism, Book of Concord. And in there is your large catechism. And in the large catechism on the seventh commandment, you would think that Luther was writing today. And he talks about how everyone is quick to punish the sneak thieves and pickpockets and people stealing a loaf of bread. And everyone, you know, cheers when they're sent to the prisons. Meanwhile, all of that's done as a great show to hide the white, the true criminals and thieves, which all wear white collars, sit in offices, and demand to be called benefactors and philanthropists. He's got this beautiful treatment, too. It just hints at the great revelation that will come at the judgment of Christ when the true thieves are revealed. And they're going to be all the people that Americans admired. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be on that list of the ten wealthiest people on earth? Oh, you mean the ten greatest thieves on earth is how that will get flipped. Okay, the Eighth Commandment. What does this mean? We should fear... Oh, sorry. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation. But defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. Luther here in the larger catechism uh, makes a really important distinction that on the one hand, we don't ever, we don't ever tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, hurt his reputation. Um, we, we ought to, if we've got, if we've got information on our neighbor, um, that is endangering himself or others, then we should go to the proper authorities with that information, not gossip about it. Um, so gossiping is forbidden, but going to the proper authorities is correct. And then Luther encourages in the latter half of his treatment of the Eighth Commandment that authorities, upon hearing this, have a duty to act. And he points to, a, to the um, authorities and, and leaders of the church and the state that they have an authority to render judgment, and in fact a duty to render judgment. Okay, but as for us in our everyday lives, we want to be looking, and outside of all offices of authority or judgment given to us by God, then we want to follow this strictly, not telling lies about our neighbor, betraying him, slandering him, or hurting his reputation, which even telling a truth might do. But rather defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. Um, I would, I would argue this, that this has been, this point has been pushed too far in the last 30 years in Lutheranism to where you can't say anything. Uh, in fact, there's a certain odd, ironic deceitfulness insofar as people are willing to bend over backwards to defend neighbors, speak well of him, explain everything in the kindest way, even when plain sight and reason says otherwise. That's, that's not holding up the Eighth Commandment to its utmost. That's betraying the Eighth Commandment. Sometimes you just have to call a spade a spade, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. That's not contrary to the Eighth Commandment. Okay. All right, the Ninth and Tenth go together. They have to do with coveting, and um, the law doesn't end with a whimper but with a bang. This is a point Paul brings up in Romans. Coveting, you think, well, that's okay. That must be the lesser of all sins. Um, why there are two commandments dedicated to it, in fact, is because it's the most pervasive of all sins. And it really gets at the root of our constant dissatisfaction with everything. All right, so ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right but help and be of service to him in keeping it. 
Again, with the seventh commandment and the getting things in a dishonest way, here I would have us draw our attention to the idea of scheming. Not scheming to get our neighbor's inheritance or house. And the scheming is to, chiefly to do it through, you know, potentially legal means, right? Or some, some upright, quote unquote, way. At least that's how it appears when in fact it isn't. It's a scheme. All right, um, and we don't want to get things in a way that only appear right, but rather help and be of service to our neighbor in keeping what he has. And then the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. These commandments are very hard for us to apply because we tend to, I mean, even just look at sports. Look at the trading that goes on from one athlete to another. Um, kind of the under-the-table details and backstabbing. This is just natural and normal to us in our culture that, of course, you can entice away someone's workers. How much are you getting paid? $17 an hour? Great. Here's seventeen fifty. Come work for me. Um, so what we see as very normal in our culture um, and as very moral in our culture, we need to take pause in light of God's word and at least consider more deeply if, in fact, this is the upright and righteous course. And I think that these are what these two commandments do. The coveting, the desire for that which we do not have and how we go about getting it um, is extremely pervasive. It's At the root of this cover, coveting is this idea of desiring. And the root of that is this idea of concupiscence. We're right here on the weekend of uh, Valentine's Day. Concupiscence, and the root of that word, you can hear Cupid. Cupid is desire. Right? Desire shoots his arrows into you. Um, so that desire, concupiscence, is that we are with desire always. And that desire is, by nature, by fallen human nature, is a desire contrary to the things of God and, a, and an insatiable desire for more and other. More and other. You could, God could give you the very thing that you want, and maybe it satisfies you temporarily, and then the flesh wants more and or other. And so we recognize how pervasive this is. It's kind of the, the closing salvo of the law. Um, even if you thought you might be righteous or somewhat righteous in regard to these other things, nobody escapes the last two. I mean, nobody escapes any of them, but nobody obviously escapes these last ones because it's the restlessness of our hearts. All right, close of the commandments. Um, and then I'll take uh, questions or comments here so I can rehydrate and recaffeinate myself. How are we doing temperature-wise, by the way? Everybody's okay? It's just me dressed like a solar panel here under these lights then. All right, the close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's the, what's the biggest prob- probably exegetical error we make with this text? Taking it too literally. Um, so, a thousand generations? Have there been a thousand generations? Think of your... Uh, Think of your New Testament texts that trace the line of Christ back. Is there anywhere near a thousand generations? So, what's going on here? Um, this is hyperbole in order to make a point. And I think it's hyperbole in order to make a point in both cases. 
um, how, how, um, how like concerned is God about sin? So concerned that he will punish the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Does this mean he'll do so like arbitrarily or whimsically? No, I think probably more accurately, it's a recognition that your sins are going to affect your children and your children's children. Just one example that I commonly give. Um, whatever you are doing in terms of your piety, in, in all likelihood, your children are going to do one step less. If you go to church, this is just anecdotally and observationally true, and there are some statistics to back it up. But if you go to church twice a month, your children, you'll be lucky if they go once a month. If you go Christmas and Easter, they're not going at all. If you go every week, expect them to go a couple times a month. Um, that's the that's the gravitational pull of culture, and it's so strong that you kind of set the bar and expect your children to fall under that. Are there going to be exceptions to that? Yeah, God willing, and God be praised, and that's what we need. We need a generation to step up and break that pattern and trend. But as parents, as heads of the household, those are the kinds of things we should have in mind. If whatever I'm inculcating to my kids, I should expect that they're going to take a portion of that and actually apply it and live it. Okay? So that what does that do? That inspires us to set the bar a little higher in expectation. Yeah, I saw a hand pop up. Please, um, one second. Yeah, one second. We'll get you a microphone here. Mm-hmm. In that gravitational pull you were saying, you know, what we do, they'll do less as far as going to church. Mm -hmm. But I think on the opposite side of that, what you do in the world, your kids will do more. So mm -hmm. if it's important for you to go shopping all the time and spending money, your kids will become, I think, yeah. even more like that. I, I know it's something that I've had to really watch with my own kids, not just in shopping, but in general. Uh, that pull is even stronger than the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Do as I say, not as I do is not a good parenting strategy. <laughs> Kids learn by example. And you can tell them that church is of the utmost and highest importance, but then when, you know, badminton season rolls along and that replaces church, what have you just taught them? Yeah, that that's really what, what matters. So, yeah, that's, this is, I mean, these are things for us to all be cognizant of. And, um, this is what, you know, this, this sentiment, this close of the commandments, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the fathers, doesn't mean that God's arbitrary. In fact, there's scriptures that say he's, that specifically define this punishment as God's not arbitrarily punishing or saying, okay, well, you've earned this amount of demerit, and so I've got to pour that out on previous generations. There's this organic sense in which Sin flows and the punishment flows through generations. But again, what ultimately is the point of this? Not that we get hung up on third and fourth generations. That's simply like, look how important this is. Look how important this is. It, look, at the, look at the severity of the consequence. That's the first half. But, and here's the second half, showing love to a thousand generations. That's the super abundance of his love and his blessing um, to those who love him and keep his commandments. So we love because he first loved us. And our love from God springs directly from his love for us in Christ Jesus. And so the more we hold Christ before our eyes and see that as God's loving gift to us and, and feel and behold the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of our hearts and minds and our consciences and the fact that he is with us no matter what we endure, we've got these rock-solid promises from him. This gracious and loving God who's so good and so tender it's beyond words. 
Um, as we love him, then we seek all the more to lean into these commandments, lean against our flesh, lean against fallen culture, um, and, and press forth with these things that he would have us do. All right, so what does this mean? And here's Luther's. God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. Okay, first half, fear his wrath. What's the second half? But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what commands. Okay, so the punishment on the one hand, the blessings on the other. And that, by the way, if you're familiar with the larger catechism, is simply he goes on and expands that in, in every imaginable way, <laughs> pretty much. Um, but that's these are the things. The, the flesh needs to be told, you do this, you're going to die. You do this, there's going to be consequences. And the soul needs to be told, I love you and I bless you, and I honor you no matter, no matter how, in what small and imperfect ways you've sought to love me and do what I command, I bless that. You know, as a father blessing a child. You know. um, what a great example we have as parents when you look at your children and it's like, okay, yeah, I asked you to set the table and it kind of looks like a disaster, but you know what? You didn't gripe this time. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, with that same kind of graciousness, um, God looks at us, albeit it's more serious to be sure, but with that same kind of graciousness, God looks at us and his children. He doesn't expect perfection. He covers us, blesses us, cleanses us with the blood of Christ, and then inspires us along the way. All right, so that is, um, you know, as the head of the household can teach his children, you can do it piece by piece. You can do a couple commandments a day, even just one commandment a day, take you a, maybe a minute or two, and you're going to lay this foundation uh, for your kiddos, for your family, for yourselves, all of the above. Let's pause there and see if you have any questions um, or anything come to mind. Yes, please. Just a, <clears throat> a general question. What's the kind of history around the numbering of the commandments because there's Christian denominations who say these aren't they they don't number them the same way we do and there's four to the first table and six to the second table yeah, yeah. I mean what's the what's well I could give a real confusion. detailed answer I'll try to keep it short and Vicar can correct me since he's fresher to the source from all this being right at the seminary but yeah the Lutherans follow Augustine in the in the ordering and the numbering um we're just not as hung up on the carved images part because it's the worship of the carved images, not the carved images themselves. It's not as if God's instructing you to go in, into your house today and destroy all your dolphin statues, you know. It's the worship that's the problem. So we fold that under the first commandment, and then we expand the other two. Um, the Reformed I, seem to be following maybe an older tradition in this regard, um, what was common in Judaism, and that's to expand the first and second, but then collapse nine and ten together. I'd be lying if I said that there's not, I mean, there's some appeal to that. Yeah, no problem. I, but that's not really the issue. How you number it is just tomato, tomato. Do you have the same content? And I, that's where I say, yeah, the answer on both is same content. So we're just not going to get all wound up about it. Now, your second question, though, some people do put, or some people, and some confessions, do put the fourth commandment on the first table. And it's a really beautiful thing because the fourth commandment um, is, is uh, Luther even hints at this in the larger catechism, because of the, uh, the there is no office greater in, on earth than father and mother. It is the office of God. It's the office through which God takes care of ch little children. Your parents were God's hands and arms, his mouth by which you were clothed and fed and washed and changed and cared for. And um, obviously, 
sinful parents can get in the way of that, to be sure. But that's still God's gift and what God intends for the office, despite the failures of individuals. So the fourth commandment, because Luther even's got this great line: you have to, you have to love and honor your parents and respect them, no matter how weird they are. <laughs> so good. Remind my kids of that all the time. Um, yeah. So that's. So why would the fourth commandment go in there? Because it's the office of God. Mm-hmm. I've got no objection to that. It's just not how we do it. Again, it's just content, emphasis. It doesn't matter all that much. Thanks. Please. Pulling from the library in my house that I've not seen for quite a while, um, I found the book by Noah Webster about the establishment of the public school Mm -hmm. in America. And the children of, in the first days of America's uh, uh, development of education, they, the children were expected to know these commandments. And he foresaw what we're living today, mm-hmm. that it, it, if you take God's word with the established rules out of a society, it deteriorates into what we've got. Yeah, what a delightful segue. Um, if, uh, are there any other questions or hands? Um, one in the back. If we open up to 53, page 53 in your catechism, um, I'll, I'll give you just a second, or I'll give you opportunity here in just a second. Um, if you open up to 53, this will kind of dovetail with the point just made. Um, okay, so if you look at question 15, what are the Ten Commandments? This is, again, page 53 in your catechism. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are God's law, His good and loving will for the lives and well-being of all people. Okay, what is God's will for our lives? God wants us to trust in Him above all else, to love Him and to love our neighbor. And then question 17 is the one that's fitting. How did God give His law to us? First, God wrote these instructions upon the heart of every human creature. All people have a conscience, an inborn sense of right and wrong. So, of course, these are strengthened by the Ten Commandments, which are kind of identical. They're, They're an expression of what God has already written into our hearts in the form of our conscience. Of course, what we're seeing large scale in, in our culture is a denial, a rejection, a destruction of the conscience. A conscience can be rightly informed or wrongly informed. A conscience can be wound too tight where it's restricting you in ways that God ha- doesn't restrict you. But a conscience can also be wound too loosely where it's permitting things that God does not permit. Conscience also takes on the characteristics of an organ, like your lungs. If you run and use your lungs all the time, they're going to grow healthier and more capable. Same with your conscience. If you listen to it and obey it and enrich it and form it with God's Word. If you take those same lungs and you smoke a pack of cigarettes every day, how do those lungs work? Very poorly and increasingly poorly. Same with the conscience. If you don't listen to the conscience, if you defile it, if it's misinformed by a steady barrage of media telling you what's right and wrong that is not in accord with your conscience, eventually your conscience begins to acquiesce and soften and deteriorate, become less healthy. Okay, so um, this is what we're up against and why it is important to teach and uphold the Ten Commandments because that's what rightly informs the conscience and in a sense that's what even is the instrument used to heal the conscience. Because the conscience, strictly speaking, isn't informed by the gospel. Your sins are forgiven doesn't inform my conscience what's right and wrong. The law does. 
And this, of course, we're going to use, we're going to refer to as the, the law as a guide for the Christian, that which informs the conscience when it's swaying this way or that. But that's a topic for another, another period. But thank you for that comment. Please. Um, we, today we look in, in looking back, we get the sense from the Pharisees, uh, which were pretty prevalent back before Christ, that one could be saved by keeping the law. Uh, and that's uh, uh, kind of what they taught. So my question is, is that what they taught? And then what are we, what, what's the state of Judaism today? Do they still teach that today, or uh, where are we at? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question, probably deserving of a class to itself. Very briefly, yeah, the Pharisees viewed, and we're speaking in generalities here, there may have been differences amongst sects, but in generalities, they viewed the fact that they were born to Abraham, born of Abraham's flesh. That's why Jesus says, do not say to me that you're born of Abraham. This was like their baptism is, hey, I'm born of Abraham. Like baptism abused. Hey, I'm baptized, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. Break all the Ten Commandments, I, I, all the commandments I want, I'm baptized. Uh, I, I, hey, I don't have to listen to you, I'm a son of Abraham. And so there was this idea of, and then circumcision ties really deeply into that. You can see why that then became so prevalent even after the, um, the resurrection of Christ in the first century. Paul's got to combat this all the time because the Judaizers are coming in saying, yeah, you got to be circumcised, this is where your, the foundation of your faith lies in this work. So, um, yeah, there, we're, um, we're born of Abraham, we're circumcised, and we keep the law unlike those filthy Gentile dogs. Now, and thus we're God's people, and thus we're saved. That, I mean, I think that that's probably fair. Obviously not quite so nuanced as maybe it should be, but fair. So that was generally it. Judaism, insofar as it is like, <laughs> I mean, insofar as Judaism exists, it exists in that form. Yeah, otherwise it's just a cultural phenomenon or there are various idiosyncrasies within modern Judaism. But it rejects Christ and it rejects the forgiveness of sins. It rejects this alien righteousness, this righteousness outside of us, given to us freely by Christ Jesus, credited to us by faith. All of that's rejected. Yeah, so St. Paul as a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, rejected by the Jews and Hebrews. And he mourns and laments that. And I mean, that's a whole, that's arguably the whole thesis of Romans is he's arguing with the Jews to come into the faith and receive salvation. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, well, we've got just a minute left, so let's not go any further. But let's next week kind of pick up with this broad discussion, again, of the law, the various dynamics and elements to the law. Um, and th- and then we're, uh, we're going to pick up on a couple of the kind of touchstone issues um, regarding the law. And, uh, and then that'll be it. We'll move on to the creed. The Lord be with you.